Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. We're changing it up a little bit this week. Rebecca and I are coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And Damian is recording from STAT's newly established New York City Bureau. Wait, what? A New York City Bureau for STAT? Damien, is that why you haven't been in the office all week? That is true. I have moved to New York, and right now our bureau is me and two cats, but we are looking to expand. It's Thursday, June 28th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The FDA has transformed over the years to become increasingly fast and business-friendly. How'd that happen, and what does it mean? ProPublica reporter Caroline Chen joins us to talk about her reporting on the subject. Amid the family separation crisis at the U.S. border, Several genetic testing companies, including 23andMe, have offered to donate their spit kits to help reunite kids with their parents. We'll talk about the idea and why immigration groups are turning down the offer. When it comes to lobbying on Capitol Hill, drug makers usually forge predictable alliances. But now, an emerging fight over biosimilars is blurring those traditional lines. Our stat colleague Aaron Mershon joins us to explain. And finally, there's a new wave of innovative therapies set to hit the Chinese market. But how are these drugs going to get paid for? We'll walk through what you need to know about the drug pricing and reimbursement system in China. A generation ago, patient advocates viewed the FDA as a bureaucratic monolith that was withholding cures from dying patients. Now, after years of reforms, the agency is the fastest in the world at approving new drugs. But some fear that the FDA has gone too far in favor of the industry it regulates, giving out fast approvals based on flimsy evidence for drugs that can cost billions. Caroline Chen of ProPublica wrote a story this week that looks at that very issue, and she's here to talk about it. Caroline, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So Caroline, how did we get here? What are the roots of today's speedy, business-friendly FDA? The roots of this come from the HIV crisis, which was a time when the FDA was taking a very long time to review drugs. And it was mainly the protests of the AIDS activists that spurred the FDA to first start creating uh, the pathways that expedite approval. So cut to the present, and those pathways are very commonly used, and, and drugs are approved by the FDA faster than any other regulatory agency in the world, as we pointed out. What are the risks that are inherent in that becoming the norm? I think what my story tried to point out is that there's a trade-off here between speed and information. So in some of the cases of accelerated approval, we're approving drugs based on a surrogate measure that does not yet prove the clinical benefit of a drug, which is does it help you live longer or live better? And that's the question we have to determine whether or not we're willing to trade off faster approval, faster access for patients for that information. So one part of your story, Caroline, that really stood out to me was your conversation with Greg Gonzalez. Uh, in the 80s, he was an activist at ACT UP, which is the group that famously protested the FDA in hopes of speeding up approvals of those HIV treatments you were talking about. But now, in the present, he worries that they, quote, opened a Pandora's box, unquote, by pushing to liberalize the agency. And I'm curious, you know, patient groups have long been on the side of faster approvals. We want more access to drugs. Do you think that the way things have changed is such that more patient advocates might come around to thinking the way Greg does. Yeah, my conversation with Greg was one of the most interesting that I had because what he said that was particularly striking to me is that the HIV activists had felt that the FDA was withholding all these miracle cures behind a curtain and not letting go of them. And over time, what he found is, yes, they did get some good drugs, but they also got some drugs that had really serious side effects. And 
you only realize those side effects over time. So his argument and the argument of many of the people I talked about is if you're going to let drugs out on the market faster, we need to have a robust follow-up to track potential safety signals that come out later or to confirm that they actually do what we think they, that they do. So you mentioned the, t- the push and pull of speed of approval of a new drug and also information about how that drug works. The third pillar of this whole thing is how much that drug costs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that even if the FDA is making their decisions regardless of price, we as society do have to face the fact that a lot of new drugs cost a lot of money. So one of the examples I had in my story was of a cancer drug that was approved in 2009 under accelerated approval. And actually, the press release that came from the FDA at the time says, as a condition of accelerated approval, the manufacturer will conduct studies to confirm that tumor shrinkage actually does predict that patients will live longer. Now, almost nine years later, we still don't have the answers to that question. Those trials have been delayed multiple times, changed, and are ongoing. And so the question I think for us to all grapple with is, are we okay paying potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars for a drug where we know that it might shrink tumors in some people, but we don't actually know whether it will help us live longer And how long are we willing to wait for those answers? Caroline, I want to ask you about the culture at FDA. One thing that struck me in your story were the comments from former FDA officials. They described a pro-industry culture at the agency, where drug approvals were celebrated, while rejections of drugs weren't talked about, even when they were made in the interest of public safety. What effect do you think this culture at FDA is having? Those interviews that I did with some of the former FDA staffers were actually the most concerning interviews I had because I think a lot of people think of the FDA as an impartial regulator and want the FDA to be an impartial regulator on behalf of patients. And what was described to me by multiple people, including in some stories that I ended up not printing because I couldn't get a second source to confirm, is that there's a subtle pressure that staffers can feel coming from their superiors. Approvals are celebrated and rejections are questioned. And there, there are people who describe you know, congratulatory emails that will go out to review team when a drug is approved. But conversely, questions or um, meetings that would happen when they were leaning towards rejection, you definitely don't get that congratulatory email after you issue a complete response letter. And so the feeling um, was summed up by one person as, you don't get promoted unless you're pro-industry. And I think that is something that, if that is happening at at a widespread level at the FDA, is something that we should all be concerned about because I don't think that serves patients ultimately. So Caroline, let's let's kind of maybe spin it forward a little bit and talk about Scott Gottlieb, the new FDA commissioner. I mean, what does your reporting say about uh, his role uh, and his push to kind of accelerate drug approvals had at the agency? I think that this trend is likely to continue because the pressures that come down on the FDA are both from the industry and from patient advocacy groups, which, as we know at this point in time, have been particularly loud, particularly with things like the Right to Try movement. So I don't think that there's much holding him back. And in fact, we have seen uh, Gottlieb announce that, as an example, they're going to start letting potentially hemophilia gene therapies through based on uh, production of clotting factors, which would be a surrogate measure. So I I expect this to be likely to continue. We also know that uh, the administration is probably putting similar pressure to speed drug approvals. Trump himself said to Gottlieb at a speech, he he said, you're going to bring that time down, right, referring to the speed it takes to take drugs to market. So I think it's a good time for everyone to pause and reflect and maybe think, you know, where do we want to strike this balance going forward? 
So if you want to know more about this, we strongly recommend you read Caroline's story, which you can find at ProPublica.org. And in the meantime, Caroline, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's return to one of the recurring themes of this podcast, the unintended consequences that can stem from consumer genetic testing. We've seen that play out in recent weeks with breakthroughs in cold cases and a sort of eyebrow-raising World Cup promotion. And this past week, we saw it manifest itself in the family separation crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. So let's recap the situation. A Trump administration policy splitting up immigrant families at the U.S. border has left several thousand children separated from their parents. Trump signed an executive order earlier this month, purportedly meant to end that policy, but it did nothing to solve the predicament facing these kids. Then some people started floating an idea. What if genetic testing companies could help reunite these families? The thinking, basically, was that just as commercial spit kits have brought together long-lost cousins or unknown siblings, they might also be able to lend a hand in the current crisis. At first, the idea took off. Some of its most prominent advocates were Jackie Spire, who's a Democratic congresswoman from California, and Andy Slavitt, who ran Medicare under the Obama administration. And then 23andMe offered to donate a bunch of spit kits to immigration groups, and MyHeritage and Thermo Fisher Scientific offered to pitch in their services and technology as well. And Wojcicki, the CEO of 23andMe, even sent out a tweet implying that President Trump does not have a heart. And right when it seemed like support for this idea was cresting, it all fell apart. Several immigration groups decided to pass on the offer from the genetics companies, saying it could do more harm than good. A Raices spokesperson told KQED, quote, essentially, we're solving one violation of their civil rights, basically with another, end quote. And the U.S. Rep. Jackie Spire said it was hitting pause on the plan and would instead prioritize the need for lawyers and translators. So what happened? Rebecca, you wrote a story early on in this news cycle highlighting some problems, whether they be logistical or ethical, uh, with this idea. And actually, if you missed that story, you can read it on Stat Plus. But Rebecca, what how did this take place? That's right. So there were a whole bunch of thorny challenges associated with this idea from the start. Uh, one key one is uh, generally genetic testing companies require parental consent uh, for minors to use their products. By definition here, that wasn't possible. There's also a big question around how you get informed consent from minors, um, particularly uh, in such a vulnerable situation. Uh, I think executing this plan as well is a massive logistical operation, uh, one that would be particularly hard to carry out um, given the situation of these separated families. And then, of course, there's privacy, which is the big one. The Carnegie Mellon ethicist Alex John London uh, made some good points on Twitter uh, that you know if this were to be used in this way, uh, we would need a lot stronger protections than these companies uh, currently offer with respect to privacy. Um, another issue he raised uh, was questions of accuracy surrounding the laboratory practices and the chain of evidence. So Rebecca, are these donated kits, uh, are they ever going to get used? I'd say it's sure looking like they won't be used, but we'll be watching closely to see if that changes. So we all know that drug makers are a formidable lobbying force in Washington, and most of the time, pharma manufacturers of different stripes tend to put forward a united front in defense of their interests. But that united front is cracking when it comes to a hot rising issue on Capitol Hill, biosimilars. 
For the uninitiated, biosimilars are highly similar versions of biologic drugs made with living cells. The class of medications is expected to take off in the next few years. Joining us to talk about this is Erin Mershon, Stats Senior Washington Correspondent. You can follow her on Twitter at E.E. Mershon. Erin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Erin, you've read a great story about this issue. And one of the things that stood out to me is that the biosimilars issue is blurring the traditional lines of who competes with whom. Yeah, that's right. So what we're seeing in the industry, sort of as opposed to your typical brand versus generic divide, is a lot of sort of big branded manufacturers competing with one another for these products. So, um, you know, there's AbbVie's flagship Humira product, uh, and you've, there's a couple of biosimilars that have already launched, and those are from Amgen and Boehringer Ingelheim. Um, or you've got the Johnson & Johnson drug Remicade, um, and both Pfizer and Celtrion and Merck and Samsung Bioepsis have biosimilars for that product. So when it comes to the lobbying dollars, can you map out for us where all the players stand on the issue of biosimilars? Yeah, so in the same way that we're seeing these sort of com- the competing going on in the business world, a lot of that same competition has translated into Washington advocacy. So Congress and other federal policymakers haven't taken up a whole lot of policies that directly target the biosimilars market, but when they do, you're seeing these sort of two distinct camps forming. Um, On one side, you've got the manufacturers who've really invested a lot in their biologic products who are still trying to defend them, and you're seeing them advocate for policies in Washington that will protect those interests. And then the other side, there are manufacturers who've sort of poured more resources into biosimilars, and they're advocating for policies that are going to advantage the new products that they have already brought to market or want to bring to market in the coming years. So on one side, you really see companies like AbbVie and Johnson & Johnson sort of pushing for the biologic protection. On the other side, I think it's mostly Novartis and Pfizer that are really clearly at the other end of the spectrum that have really sort of put a lot of money into biosimilars and are trying to push those policies forward. Now let's talk about the trade groups. What does this mean for the big industry groups that represent branded and generic drug makers? I think that's where you really see the struggle. So companies lobbying on opposite sides of a particular issue isn't a new thing in Washington. But I think it is fair to point out that for a trade association like pharma or like bio, where either all of these companies are members or very, very many of these companies are member companies, you know, the lobbyists are struggling to figure out sort of which side to take. So they'll have, you know, AbbVie and Johnson & Johnson whispering in their ear one way and Novartis and Pfizer whispering in their ear another way. Um, And so when this does come up in Washington, at least on the sort of couple of smaller issues where it's started to come up, we've really seen those trade associations sidelined. They're not able to take a position or it takes them a long time to kind of iron out and herd the cats to figure out what position to take. Um, So you're seeing these sort of big, powerful lobbying organizations that are used to being aggressive speakers on the issues that matter to the industry, and they're sort of struggling to figure out what to say. So what are you going to be watching for as this lobbying fight progresses on Capitol Hill? Yeah, so as I pointed out, sort of this is a new policy area. There are only a couple of biosimilars on the market in the U.S. A few more have launched but sort of aren't on the market yet. I think what we're going to see is a lot more issues that affect them as the industry grows. So there are hints of what's to come in the Trump administration's blueprint for sort of the policy ideas they have for lowering drug prices. They've talked about issues like interchangeability and some other things that Uh, will certainly affect the industry and where I think you'll see these same sort of split or these two camps forming. But but right now it's hard to say exactly what policies will come up, only that that this is going to continue to be an issue to come. Great, Erin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, congratulations. China's version of the FDA just approved your new drug. Now, how are you going to set the price and get that drug reimbursed? 
This is an increasingly burning question for drug makers. And that's because China just approved its first cancer immunotherapy drug, which analysts anticipate will carry a price tag in the mid to high five figures in China. It's the first of what's expected to be a wave of cutting edge medicines entering the country. And it raises big questions about how drug makers are going to make money in the much typed Chinese market. Rebecca called up a bunch of experts to try to get a handle on how drug pricing and reimbursement work in China. You can read her explainer about how all this works on Stat Plus, but let's start with the basics. Rebecca, explain to us how drugs get paid for in China. Okay, so once you get your drug approved by China's FDA, there are three main ways that you can get paid for it. There's private insurance, self-pay by Chinese patients, and the government's single-payer health system. All right, so let's walk through each of these ways, uh, starting with private insurance. Yeah, so that's very negligible. Only about 5% of people in China have private insurance. It's typically sponsored by their employer, which might be a multinational corporation or a big Chinese company. So the second and more common way is self-pay by Chinese patients, right? That's right. So that's the main and usually the only way that innovative new drugs get paid for. We're talking for a period of years after they're approved by China's FDA. And we're talking straight out of pocket payments here, though there is a caveat. There are patient assistance programs, often offering deals like buy four months, get two months free of a drug that's meant to be taken for six months. So let's now move to uh, number three, and that's the government's single payer health system. So this is basically like Medicare in America, except China's system covers an absolutely enormous number of people. Some 95% of the population there has basic coverage. And the Chinese government will cover certain drugs, typically at a rate of maybe around 80% of the cost, where patients pay a 20% copay. So this sounds like the ideal reimbursement route for drug makers, and it absolutely is if you can get it. But there's a huge catch. It can take years for the Chinese government to be willing to cover a drug. And that means that innovative new drugs simply don't get covered this way until they're not new or innovative anymore. So how do you get, let's say I'm a drug maker, I've just won approval, how do I get the Chinese government to cover my therapy? You have to get onto a national catalog, which isn't easy. You're not gonna get listed unless you agree to lower the price of your drug substantially. But as I mentioned before, even in a best case scenario, this is gonna take a few years. And even then, you're still not out of the woods because you still have to convince each of China's more than 30 provinces to cover your drug. Then there's a whole nother layer where you have to persuade the hospitals that dominate the Chinese healthcare landscape to prescribe your drug. And that can mean having to discount the drug even more. So Rebecca, is there any precedent that we should look for on how innovative drugs get paid for in China? Yeah, so let's talk about Avastin. That's Roche's blockbuster oncology drug. And so when Avastin launched in the Chinese market, it was almost exclusively paid for by self-paying Chinese patients, helped, as I'd mentioned, with patient assistance programs. Then last summer, the Chinese government agreed to list it on the national catalog in exchange for a 62% drop in price. And the big question when that happened was whether that price cut would be offset by rising volume. Well, it was interesting, Rebecca, when your story came out, um, the Twitter man of mystery and power user Andy Biotech uh, tweeted some really interesting data on that question. He pointed out that Roche cut the price of Avastin by like 62%, but the volume jumped by more than 50% year over year, so it was able to basically more than make up for um, the discount that the company was offering. So what are some of the innovative new medicines that are gonna pose pricing questions in the Chinese market soon? So the first one is Opdivo. That is China's first approved cancer immunotherapy, actually approved earlier this month. 
And analysts expect the drug's manufacturer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, to price the drug in China in the ballpark of maybe $60,000 a year to $90,000 a year in US dollars. So that's way less than Optivo costs in the United States, where it's at about $157,000. So that price tag could be a real bellwether for how pricing questions play out in China. So Optivo is a type of immunotherapy known as a PD-1 inhibitor. That's the kind that releases the brakes on the immune system. And four other drug makers have filed for approval from China's FDA for more PD-1s. And then there's even more in the pipeline in clinical development in China. Well, so that brings up another thing, Rebecca, from your story that I found really interesting, which is the discussion of how so much competition could have really rapid and interesting effects on drug pricing in China. Yeah, so that's right. So in reporting my story, I called up Christian Hogg. He's the CEO of a biotech company called ChiMed. It's located in Hong Kong, and they're developing targeted therapies for the Chinese market and beyond. So Christian had a really interesting perspective, uh, which is that he thinks the PD-1 space is overinvested in China, and that there's too little differentiation. And he thinks there's a risk that the floor might fall out of pricing on PD-1s. Here's what he had to say. If what you're seeing is all products behaving much the same from an efficacy standpoint, from a safety profile standpoint, then I think it will, it could potentially be a race to the bottom. Well, I think it's fascinating about this. You know, there's the, the sort of trope that China is catching up to the United States at a breakneck pace in technology and in various fields. And in this case, it seems like they're catching up to us and maybe even surpassing us with respect to drug pricing and discounts in that in this country, we've always said like, oh, drug makers have always pointed out that more competition will bring down drug prices. And in many cases, that hasn't been the case. But here we have this like overnight success of immunotherapy in China, where we're already talking about the price floor falling out on uh, on PD-1 inhibitors. All right. So Rebecca, now that you understand China's pricing and reimbursement system, are you thinking about the rise of Chinese biopharma any differently? Yeah, so there's a ton of excitement about Chinese biopharma, but my reporting here, I think, raised some big questions about how and whether drug makers are going to be able to make the big profits that are envisioned in, in China. You know, the problem is there's just no guarantee that the Chinese government's single-payer health system will agree to pay for these drugs anytime soon, and, and there's not the mechanism for them to get paid for out of pocket by Chinese patients or through private insurance. And so I think China could become sort of the next frontier for uh, some of these thorny challenges around drug pricing. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, Jacqueline Jeffrey-Wolensky, and Matthew Orr, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, whether it's suggestions for future episode topics, future guests, or really anything whatsoever. You can email us at readoutloud at statnews.com. <laughs>